Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox, and I am here with the specialist guest. I think you should introduce yourself. It's only right. Should I do the welcome to yes, Inside the Hive? I'm Nick Bilton. It feels like home, right? It feels like home. It always feels like home. It's great. It's good to be back. We have so much to talk about, but I feel like I should talk about, do you hear that sort of cash register sound, that cha-ching, cha-ching sound, or is it just me? I think. That's the official soundtrack of you earning credits in heaven. <laughs> it's official. It's official. I didn't know where this was going. I thought you were going to say, did you, did you short Tesla? Did you? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is official. For those people who don't know, I'm officially married to someone that Nick introduced me to. So I think you know that- what, You know what they thought you were going to say? That they, were, they thought you were going to say, for those of you who don't know, I'm officially married to Nick. <laughs> in my next life. In your next life. Yes, yes, I I introduced Emily to her now husband and uh, father of, of their beautiful child. Um, so yeah, I get, I get credit somewhere for that. And we are especially excited to have you this week to talk about all of the Elon Musk Twitter madness. Nick, what the fuck is going on? Um, well, so let's just back up for those of you that don't know, I... I wrote the book on Twitter back in uh, 2013. It published, it's called Hatching Twitter. And uh, the very first blog post, thank you very much. The very first blog post I ever wrote for the New York Times back in 2008, nine or something like that was about Twitter. Like my entire career has been Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. I wrote a piece, my first big feature for Vanity Fair in 2016 was about Twitter, which led to a $6 billion lawsuit against the company, which they... uh, actually just settled for a billion dollars for so twitter for better and a lot a lot of times for worse is just kind of part of my my career dna so you can imagine that when uh news broke that elon was gonna buy the company my phone just was blowing up left right and central from people wanting to know what was going on but also people who worked there and had worked there and their opinions and it's it's really kind of a a shocking i think for everyone that i've spoken to no one expected this, you know, like the joke, like this wasn't on my bingo card. Like there were a lot of scenarios that people expected, even the company being taken private, but Elon Musk being the one to do that was definitely not, not in anyone's uh, purview. So if, if no one expected this, no one thought this was going to be the thing that happened to Twitter of all the things that could have happened at this moment to Twitter, how did this happen? And, and in your view, as someone who obviously knows so much about Twitter, but, but knows so much about the kind of person that Elon Musk is, why is he doing this? How did this come to be? Just break down the, the various aspects from, from what you're hearing, from what you know of these people and what you know about this company. Well, I think, you know, Twitter is a, it's a company that has always been in some sort of turmoil. There's always been something that has, has been happening at the company where there's been backstabbing between the employees, there's been backstabbing between the founders, there's been backstabbing on the board. It is, it's a tumultuous company. And part of the reason for that is, is because of the leadership. So if you look at Facebook, Apple, and you look at Amazon, they were there. These are leaders that that don't fuck around. Honestly, you know, if someone tried to oust them, that person would be gone. And they they kind of rule with a bit of an iron fist in, in many respects. At Twitter, it's the complete opposite. You know, it was founded by four people by accident. You know, Jack Dorsey pushed out Noah Glass, who co-founded it early on. Uh, Ev Williams pushed out Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey pushed out Ev Williams and came back. Dick Costolo took over. Jack Dorsey came back. It's just like, it's just, it's total theater, Game of Thrones style. It's messy. You know, mess. Yeah. Um, which is fine. It happens in companies. But but I think, you know, with this company specifically, it led to 
a lot of the issues that we see on the platform today. And so because there was all this backstabbing, name fighting and so on and so forth for control, Twitter was largely just kind of left to its own devices, almost like a, a child that's neglected and like grows up to become a serial killer. And I think that part of the thing that has happened is the DNA of the company is infused in the platform and people use it for both good and for bad. And where Elon comes in is it's his marketing tool. You know, he has 86 million followers or something now. Almost uh, 88. 81, 80, 88. Wow. It's, I mean, so he's growing like a million a day at this point. But he, uh, he was around 81 last week or so. He has said in in public filings around his around Tesla and SpaceX and so on and so forth that that he doesn't have a marketing budget like he is the marketing budget. And Twitter is how he gets stuff out there. And you just go look, go look up on Google News, you know, search Elon Musk and you will or search Elon Musk Twitter and there'll be the stories about the acquisition. But there will also be hundreds and hundreds of stories about each tweet he sends. It can move markets. I mean, look what happened with Bitcoin when he bought. He said that Tesla was going to accept Bitcoin a few months back and, and then changed his mind and the market moved 20%, the entire crypto market. And I well, think didn't that he get in, in extreme trouble for tweeting something about he's gotten in he's gotten in a lot of trouble because of Twitter. Like it's his it's his one of his, you know, it's his lifeblood in some respect. It's how he reaches out to the world. Um he tweeted uh, a couple of, in 2018, taking Tesla private um, funding secured, which turned out to be an inaccurate tweet, which the SEC then put a kind of gag order on him about what he could tweet about and, and right. so on and so forth. So coming back to Twitter, though, because of all the chaos at the company, you know, the company went public nine years ago and the stock went came out at around $40. Today, the stock is around 48 But when Elon announced that he had purchased 9.2% of the company on April 4th, uh, the stock was exactly where it had been around $38, $40, exactly where it had been nine years earlier. Now, you compare that to other tech stocks that are worth tr literal trillions of dollars, and yet this is one of the most influential companies on the planet. And I think that it makes sense that you know there was always rumblings that someone would eventually take Twitter private because it was run in a, such a poor manner. Um, and in Elon, I think, saw an opportunity to do that. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. So for those people who don't quite understand what this, how this operates and how this works, if you take a company private, what is the idea of how that will make the company more valuable? Well, it means that you're no longer, I mean, I think Elon has spoken quite publicly about how he regrets taking Tesla um, public. You know, he he hates the scrutiny of the SEC. He hates the, I mean, he viscerally hates the SEC. Um, he hates the fact that investors short him. He sees that as a slight. I mean, he, you know, he just got into a very public spat, a one-way spat with Bill Gates, where there was some text messages that were leaked where Bill had set, reached out to him and said uh, that he wanted to, you know, get him involved in climate change stuff. And Elon responded in the text and said, D you know, are you still short 
Tesla and he said I'd close that position or something. And then Elon essentially said, fuck off. If you're short Tesla, then you're not for climate change because I've been the most impactful person on climate change in history. Um, and, and I think that he, you know, he really takes it personally as a slight against him when when that happens. And so I think if he could, he genuinely would have taken Tesla private in 2018 if he had the opportunity to do that. And mm. he definitely tried to do that. Um, as far as Twitter's concerned, it means that they don't have to respond to the public markets. It means they don't have to deal with advertising. It means that they they can do pretty much anything they want. There's no board to answer to. When when this deal goes through, if it goes through, and we should get to the if in a little bit, but uh, the board is dismantled. Um, it's his company. He can do whatever the hell he wants with it. And that, for a lot of people that work at Twitter, is quite frankly terrifying. Well, I want to hear from the people that you've been talking to who do work at Twitter what the mood inside there is like right now. I mean, as we speak, everything is moving so quickly here in the story. I would say uh, this podcast episode we are recording on Thursday morning. I fear by the time this comes out on Friday morning, some something catastrophic or some some crazy bit of this will happen and it won't even be included in the podcast. But the big story today is that Elon has gone after Twitter's head of legal by posting a meme uh, about her and then many, 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 many people on Twitter have sort of expanded on the meme in a very hateful way that feels like it is making it unsafe for her to exist on the platform, but but just to to be around. And he's going after her for basically policing speech on Twitter. And, and many people have piled on and said very hateful things about her and, and her decisions to peel back on trolls and bullying and hate speech on Twitter. And it's it's the height of irony that she's being responded to with that exact kind of hate speech and bullying on Twitter. So what are people inside the building and who work at the company saying? Well, it's funny you say, so it's interesting that you say that she had made these decisions. Really, the decisions come down to the person who is in charge, who was Jack Dorsey. Mm. Uh, and uh, even though Jack Dorsey runs his companies in a very peculiar way where he doesn't actually run them. He, he he has this philosophy of other people should run them. And if he has to make a decision, that means that he hasn't hired the right people, uh, which is Interesting. very strange, but that's just the way he does it. Um, he's currently down in Santa Teresa, Costa Rica. He's been there for a couple of years now, I think, during the pandemic surfing. But the reason I bring that up is because inside the company, there's a lot of hatred towards Jack. You know, Jack has had a very kind of tumultuous relationship with Twitter as he's come in and out of the company. You know, people become very in, in tech culture. There's this kind of this praising of the CEOs as if they're some otherworldly gods. And, um, and Jack, you know, of course, has played quite into that. And so Inside Twitter, the you know we back up a month ago, uh, a few months ago actually, when Jack Dorsey was CEO, there is a lot of people that completely idolized Jack. They thought he was the next, you know, the God's gift to the universe. He was the next Steve Jobs, and so on and so forth. And then there are some people that just kind of think he's full of shit and that he's you know a checked out CEO. And what's interesting about both of those people is that they both stayed at Twitter in the interest of Twitter, some of them because they were obsessed with Dorsey and, and his vision for the company, and others because they thought that Dorsey was going to destroy the company and that had a, it had a, the most integral uh, position in, of all tech companies on the planet. And so Jack was, he quote unquote resigned in November of last year after being, being uh, back at the company for seven years, which was his third stint there. Um, he didn't resign. He was kind of pushed out. There's like a whole thing there that we can get to if we want. But, but he, when he left, he put in uh, this guy, Parag, uh, well, the board put in this guy, Parag, who was, who's been at Twitter for a long time to run it. And, uh, and then Elon decides he's going to kind of come in and take, take the company uh, private. So what's interesting is the relationship between Jack and Elon. So years ago, Elon used to tell people that he thought Jack was a weirdo who looked at him funny. And then for some reason, over time, they've become friends. They've gotten into you know public debates about Bitcoin. They've gone and done a lot of public talks together about crypto and, and so on. Uh, in the, I think it was 2020 or 21, I forget, they had a an all hands meeting for Twitter down in Texas, and 
uh, Elon was the guest speaker. He kind of came in on uh, Zoom um, uh, and Jack and him, you know, ha- had a conversation in front of all the employees. So there's a history and a relationship between those two. And they they tweeted each other in kind of like an adoring, you know, bromance way. So when Elon this week came out and was attacking Vija, the, the, uh, the lawyer, what people at Twitter were pissed about was that Jack wasn't defending her because he was the one who who had also been part of the decision making of kicking some of these people off the platform, especially Donald Trump in, in, on January 6th. Uh, and so inside the company, there's just a lot of vitriol towards him. And I think that Jack is kind of in this place where he doesn't want to piss off his friend Elon, but he also has to kind of defend the, the employees. So he's just so far hasn't said anything. And then there's on top of that, there's a lot of anger inside the company that that Elon is going to be able to buy it. And I think that the people are worried and rightly so that, you know, if he decides that he wants to do something as a private company that, you know, makes the Democrats less vocal and the Republicans more vocal or vice versa, he can do that and no one would know. And I think that there are a lot of fears about what Elon might be able to do as he owns this company without any oversight. Well, I think we've seen that play out, not just with people who work at Twitter, but also people who are on Twitter. And I, one of the things that has confused me the most in the, the last few days is people uh, worrying about what Elon's going to do with their DMs. Yeah, well, the, because the DMs on Twitter are not encrypted and they should be. And it's it's actually a travesty that they're not. Uh, and that's another thing that a lot of employees were pissed about when Dorsey was running the company. Um, I mean, the company, let's be honest, like it hasn't changed in 16 years. It's the same exact platform. Sure, you can do thread tweets. Sure, you can you can post a photo or a video in, in a tweet, but give me a break. I mean, that's it. That's It's like there's nothing that has changed about this platform, really, and the stock price in a decade. And I think that when you look at Facebook, Facebook is a fundamentally different company than when it started. Mm-hmm. YouTube is a fundamentally different company. Google, all Google is, you know, was a fucking search engine and it's now they're, they have driverless cars and, and dogs that are robots and like God knows what else. Amazon was selling books and it now it's the everything store that you can literally, you know, they make movies, they, they have shipping systems. I mean, everything. And and here's Twitter, which I would argue is way more influential than any of these other companies. And it's essentially the same thing with unencrypted DMs. So uh, Elon did come out yesterday um, on Wednesday, um, I believe it was, and tweeted that all DMs should be encrypted. And hopefully that's something that they will do before he buys the company. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a kind of habit of going after journalists that he doesn't like. He's very Donald Trumpy in that respect. And He's blocked a lot of journalists on Twitter. And, you know, I think it would be very dangerous if he were able to go into their DMs and see who he, who they're talking to. So I, I think that that's one big concern. But there's another thing that I've realized, which I haven't written about yet, but I will probably write about next week for VF, is that, you know, we're all kind of fretting about the free speech stuff today and the, and and the state of the company today and i think where we should give elon credit is that he definitely you know you know that meme like i'm living in 2022 and and you're living in 3022 or whatever yes. like he's living in 3022 like mm-hmm. he and you know he's building driverless cars he's building rockets that are going to take us to mars he's doing all these things and i think that when you look at what he's going to do with twitter it's not like he's just going to let it be this like platform that exists for today. He's going to be thinking about it in a futuristic sci-fi way. And I think the way he's going to do that is through artificial intelligence. Like he has the AI platforms that drive our driverless cars. Well, what happens when you apply that to speech and predictability and so on and so forth on Twitter? And there's a world in which you can start to see if someone were to do that in a very clever way, you could predict market flows, you could predict you know, elections, all these different things, things that Twitter should have been doing. Uh, and I think that that's something that he's going to start exploring. Well, that that part of it is exciting to me. And I think as someone who has seen what Elon has done in his other companies and, and the ways in which he has completely revolutionized those other markets, it's exciting to think of what he could do. And yes, I completely agree with you that Twitter is stuck in a different, it almost feels like a different century, definitely, definitely a different decade. 
while Twitter has stayed the same and the stock price has stayed the same, the environment has completely changed. I remember uh, when I first came to VF, I interviewed Kevin Systrom, who uh, started Instagram. And it was, I think it was like the fifth birthday of Instagram. That was the premise of the interview. And he said something to me about like the point of Instagram was the Arab Spring and being able to see moments like that around the world. And it was the first time that something like that could be completely broadcast and people a world over could literally see real-time footage uh, from people on the ground. And I think so much of the language around Twitter and Instagram and Facebook uh, around the time when they really became part of everyone's everyday life was opening up the world to moments like that. And there undoubtedly have been so many moments like that that have been so helped by uh, these platforms. But I feel like a lot of these founders who came to be at that moment, who created these companies and put them into culture at that moment of around the Arab Spring, fundamentally don't understand what it's like to be a user of those platforms in 2020, 22. And these platforms have turned from a great eye opener to like a great dumpster fire because of the ability for people to spread misinformation and disinformation. We saw that so many times over the last few years. And I think that's what worries me about, well, that's part of what worries me about someone like Elon coming in. Like, Do they understand the landscape? Uh, it's not just about free speech. It's It's about making these really difficult decisions of how to police the First Amendment. Is Elon Musk the person we want in charge in understanding how to police the First Amendment? These are really sticky questions that I certainly don't have an answer to. You don't have an answer to, but Elon Musk, yeah. like flamethrower-in-chief well, flame is going to have an answer to thrower. that. <laughs> so here's where I'll, 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 I'll come in on this. I'm going to defend the far right for a second here. Excuse me are for doing okay? that, but I will. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm not. I didn't fall and hit my head. I think that free speech is one of the most complicated things on the planet. I wrote a piece saying that Elon Musk is about to um, about to realize that building rockets that go to Mars is easier than trying to, to you know figure out free speech on on social media. I, I think that and I do believe that. Truly, do believe that. It's not mm -hmm. just a hyperbolic statement. Like there are there are very easy parameters with which you have to operate in to get to Mars. You have, you know, there are physics and laws and so on and so forth and math. And it's about solving those problems, but they are, there are, you know, lanes that you stay in. With free speech, there aren't. And it's what's so complicated about it is that that there are limitations on our speech in America, lots and lots and lots of them. There are limitations when you go to school, to university, to things that you can say about other people that cause harm. There's, there are, you know, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of legal cases that limit speech in certain ways uh, and things that you can and, and say and cannot and where and when and, and so forth, you can say those things. We have a, one of the most you know, it's actually not one of the most open and free speech countries in America. I mean, in the world, there are others that are even more so, but we're pretty, pretty high up there. And, and Elon has been saying that, you know, he believes that that speech should be reflective of the laws of the land. Okay, well, that means you're still going to actually have to have some rules and regulations. But now going back to the far right folks, I do think that what happened was, and this is where I think all the platforms really fucked up royally is if you go back to the early days of social media, when they became public companies, Facebook, Twitter, you know, snap, all of these companies, they, Sheryl Sandberg was the most vociferous about this, but they were out there saying, we are not a media company. And the reason they were saying that is because they didn't want the New York times to think that they were competing with advertising dollars because if they were a media company, then they are. And if that's the case, then the New York times and other places shouldn't be allowing their content to be on these platforms and, and so on. So it became a, it was a financial decision to do that. And the end result is that they also did not have to monitor or define what was said on these platforms because they weren't quote unquote a media company. And the reality is we ended up getting all the things that happened with, 
Cambridge Analytica, with you know all the stuff around Trump, the rise of fake news, and, and so on and so forth. So then there was this after after all the chaos with Trump, and it got so out of hand when he's blatantly lying on these platforms. There's no checks and balances. Uh, you know, society is kind of spinning the drain. That's when the, everyone, you know, years too late decides like, oh, we got to do something about this. We have to start fact checking these tweets. We have to start banning these accounts that are, are that are going too far. And I think what happened was that they went too far with the banning. And the result was that it came across to a lot of people that there was a liberal slant on on how far these decisions were going. Mm-hmm. Um, and and part of it was around vaccines and all these things. But I think that that's where, that's where people started to get really pissed. Um, and I think that's where Elon started to get upset. I do actually believe that Elon truly does care about free speech. I don't necessarily think that that's the whole reason he's buying this company, but I do think he does care about it. And I think that the problem is, is he's now saying we're going to be reflective of the laws of the land. Well, you know who tried that too? Two websites. One was called 4chan and the other was called 8chan. Exactly. And they are disasters. And Moot, who I've spoken to, who started 4chan, it's like a regret of his that he did this thing. You know, it's not it's not something that he's proud of. And I think he realized what happens when you let unmitigated free speech run run rain over uh, over a platform and I think Elon's going to find out and have to make some really hard decisions and if you are watching this video either I'm dead or I'm in a very 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 bad situation she said oh my god I can hear gunshots I can hear men outside where are they what have they done to them are they dead are they not dead there is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Well, my concern here is I don't think that these social media companies have always gotten it right because I think it's an impossible thing and you're putting people who really have no business making these decisions, making these decisions. I don't know who has the ability to make these decisions and this, you know, in some ways people will argue, well, this should be regulated by the government. And it's like, is the government the right people to be making these decisions? Those people can't like decide on anything in any kind of efficient way. And I don't know that I trust the the opinions of people who are even elected officials anymore. We're in this sort of wild west time where I don't know who is to trust. I don't I don't think it's corporate leaders. I don't think it's people in Silicon Valley. I don't think it's people in Washington. And so we're in this really weird period of time where where everything's both completely consequential and there's no leadership to be found anywhere. But I keep thinking about the episode that we did last week where we had James Pogue on talking about the very far right. And I saw this week Jeff Bezos tweet out the link to the article that James Pogue wrote for Vanity Fair. And from dinners I've had and conversations I've had with people who are very powerful, very plugged in, very wealthy, uh, they're sort of intrigued by this ideology and this way of thinking and and the cathedral of, of people um, sort of moving away from this so-called mainstream ideology. And it just worries me to have that kind of thinking be the kind of thinking that is able to buy into describing what is free speech, right? Like Elon Musk is going to be an arbiter of what we're consuming of of whose voices get to say what they want to say and Elon Musk is like pretty divorced from from any kind of check balance or reality right like this is the richest man in the world is now going to decide what is okay to discuss 
that just feels crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that he, this is what I think he thinks is going to happen. I think he's going to, he thinks he's going to take over Twitter. And I do want to get to this deal may all fall apart, by the way, yes. uh, at some point before the end of the show. Um, he thinks he's going to take over Twitter and he's going to say, hey, we're just going to kind of create these rules that reflect the laws of the land and and that's it. And, and, and I think he'll probably like bring in his Tesla AI people and they'll start writing some stuff to get rid of the bots and, and, and then they're going to, you know, start to bring back the accounts that have been banned and, and so on and so forth. And I think he's what he's going to immediately bump into is eh, this isn't so easy. So the bots, for example, well, what's a bot? So there are people who, uh, the New York Times, uh, has Vanity Fair. We we have accounts. Everyone has accounts that just automatically tweet links to new articles. Is that a bot? Should we ban that? You know, or uh, there are certain people who uh, we, we did a project. I used to be a professor at NYU years ago. And we had a project where we had plants that were connected to Twitter. And whenever they were thirsty, they would tweet that they were thirsty, and then we go water the plants. And like, and then there are bots that do bad things. But but. But maybe they're not. I don't know. Is is a bot that's tweeting about, you know, things happening in war zones or, you know, donations to to rogue states from in crypto like those bad? And it's 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 impossible to fucking define like and and yet he thinks he's just going to do it with like an algorithm and he's just going to fix it. and He's going to get rid of all the bots and all the spam. You can't just do that. And I think that that's going to be across the board what's going to happen. And I think that the the part that I worry about is what happens when he realizes that and he realizes this is a lot more difficult than he he set out to solve. The one thing I will say is that, you know, going back to the he lives in 20, it, we live in 2022 and he lives in 3022. There is one theory I do have that, and I don't know if it's altruistic or if it's financial or maybe it's both, but one of the companies that Elon runs also, it's called Starlink, which is the satellite internet system. Uh, and we saw Starlink being used in Ukraine. Elon wasn't honest about it. He, he made it seem like he had just donated the Starlink systems for, to give folks in Ukraine the internet after Russia had taken it out. It turned out that the U.S. government paid him for it, but that's just another Elon, you know, uh, smoke and mirrors thing he does. But, but um, it has been effective. People have been able to use, use, use the internet because of it, uh, and they do in many, many countries around the globe. So what if... Elon can give everyone, let's just say hypothetical, let's just do like a fast forward sci-fi version of this. Let's just say he gives everyone access to to um, Starlink and they get a Twitter account. You know, imagine like in Iran or in North Korea where they get the internet and they can, they can go on Twitter and share what's really happening there. Like that could be very powerful. It could change things. In China, for example, they police what people can do online. But what if you could just bypass that and we could actually see some of the atrocities that are happening there with like the Uyghurs and all, all these different things. Well, you think about what that could be like for the Russian citizens who are completely only consuming propaganda about what's happening in Ukraine. And so they're not rising up against Putin. And if they had all the information, were able to see what was happening and see that this was a bogus war, would they rise up and would Putin then lose his power, right? It could have it could have incredibly powerful impacts and effects, and I think that if this is what he's thinking, and I think this is what he's thinking, you know, you, Twitter right now only has two hundred twenty nine million active users. Their, their earnings were today, and you know, they're barely a blip higher than they were last quarter. Uh, imagine if you could go to Africa and give everyone access for free, or you could go to these other countries. Like you could be, you could have a billion people on this platform. Imagine what happens then. But then, you know, there's also it goes back to the free speech thing. And, you know, if it's the laws of the land and so on and so forth, like, how do you deal with that? And it's, so it's it's there are, are potentially huge, impactful upsides. And then there are also massive downsides. And the problem is, is where I think, you know, what scares me is that it's up to one person to decide how this all works. Yeah. And, and that person is both a complete genius who's revolutionized the way we live today and probably and definitely the maniac. way we live tomorrow. And he's a maniac who's like tweeting about in the midst of all this chaos, like making jokes about putting cocaine back in Coca-Cola if he bought Coca-Cola right now. Like it, it's really hard to engender trust when you're tweeting things that are completely maniacal. And, and I think obviously that's a joke, but like 
there are serious things at hand here. And I think that there's a time and place for that demeanor. And Elon has skated by and and done incredibly big things and amassed a, an incredible fortune, even while doing those things that are insane and not normal behavior. But it, it makes me a little bit nervous. I, I say all of this as someone who literally never goes on Twitter. I would say like, yeah, I probably am on Twitter for, I would say for the entire week I'm on for 15 minutes, if that. And I, I slowly stopped using the platform, I guess, like after the election. And now I really don't use the platform. And anytime I go on it now, I'm like, ugh, this is such loserville. Like everyone who feels the need to tweet out what their opinions on a situation are seems like you need to get a hobby and you need to get a life. And like, it just feels like a moment of my yesteryear. And there are definitely use cases for it. I think breaking news, it's really useful to see. And I use it to tweet out episodes of this podcast, but like, that's the extent of it for me. And so to me this week where everyone has been so crazy about what this means for Twitter, it has felt like a, a little bit like news for the newsroom and people whose entire careers and platforms have been built around Twitter a lot of their social life is built around Twitter too and and their value is derived from how many people follow them on the platform. Maybe this is a recalibration of that. But I know you and I are both are sort of in this camp of like, we haven't been enmeshed in this community for quite some time because of the shifts that we were seeing in, you know, trolls and bots and people's egos and, and all that stuff. I think you and I had moved away from the platform for quite some time. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I I obviously have a very strange relationship with the platform because yes. of writing about it so extensively for so long, but I don't use it really anymore either. And the reason I don't use it is because I've had instances where I've tweeted things and they've been taken completely out of context or, you know, but there's no nuance as as just the problem with, with Twitter. And, and it's, you know, I've become a, a trending topic or whatever. And uh, and that that's no fun, I can tell you. I mean, for someone like Elon, he gets off on it and clearly just loves the attention. But like for most normal human beings, it's really, it's like a shitty feeling. Well, there's also no consequence for him, right? Like people expect that kind of exactly. behavior and he's so rich and so powerful that like, who yes. cares? I think the people where there's no consequence, Trump, Elon, the nobodies that you know, have anonymous accounts. Like I think that they enjoy it and for them it's fun. But I think when you could lose your job and your livelihood, or you could, you know, start getting death threats from idiots, like whatever it is, like I think, and I think this is the reason why a lot of people have left the platform. I think that, you know, I, I it, what was something, a friend of mine reached out to me. I, had, I hadn't tweeted in, in eight months or so. I deleted it from my phone. I did, like completely gotten rid of it. Uh, didn't check it, barely checked it on my computer, maybe one minute a week of that. And a friend reached out who I've known for a long time and said, why haven't you tweeted? And and I said, I explained why I said, I just don't, it's like too much vitriol. It's like an angry place. And he said, but I feel like you have so much to say about tech and, and I think you could help like with the conversation and like, it'd be great to have a voice that like kind of, especially with Twitter understands it and so on and so forth. And I feel like you should, you should start tweeting again. And I was like, That's you know nice. what, maybe, a nice maybe he's, it's a nice friend. Maybe he's right. You know, maybe like it is my job. It's what I do. So I tweeted something and it, I forget what the fuck it was, but it immediately like went viral and like all of these like MAGA people and like QAnon people and God and like, and crypto bros, like whole, a whole new segment of a population that didn't exist really. What, I mean, they did exist, but they were like, they had taken over the platform they came after me and hundreds and hundreds. And I was literally like, what the fuck? Like, why did I do this? Yeah. And so for me, it's like, I still tweet once in a while, but I don't, I don't want to be on there. And I think that for Elon, that's going to be really hard to get those people to come back because most people have left the platform. Most people I know don't use it anymore. And even the founders, you know, Jack tweets once in a while. Ev Williams barely ever tweets. Biz, you know, all of the Noah Glass hasn't tweeted in years. You know, the early employees, half of them are private. They've closed their accounts. Like it's it's a cesspool. It really is genuinely that's what it is. And I and to go back to like to what Kevin Systrom said about, you know, the Iranian Revolution and 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 so on, nothing changed. 
Mm. Like, let's just be frank. Nothing changed. And Black Lives Matter, like, I've talked to DeRay about this, who was one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, who's on Twitter. And he was saying, you know, a realization he had is that more Black people were killed by cops last year than any time, a year after George Floyd, than any time before. And so it's like, as much as we want to, and sure, look, there have been massive positive impacts. Like, I do believe that Me Too would not have happened had it not been for Twitter. And we have seen the changes in society as a result of that. And they've been completely and utterly positive in so many ways. But there are also probably massive downsides to that that we don't even, we just can't see yet. I just think it's all really, really complicated. It is extremely complicated. And I think it's going to get more complicated because in some ways what we're talking about, which is sort of the like never tweet phenomenon, like the... I advise people all the time. They're like, oh, should I tweet this out? Should I say this? And I'm just like, don't. Like, what is the point of saying anything? That sort of attitude is, I think, what Elon is fighting against, that he wants there to be a public square, that he wants there to be a community where people are free to say things without fear of getting quote unquote canceled or shadow banned on Instagram or, or, or blocked on Twitter or whatever it is. And so- in, in that sense, like the thing that we're talking about or complaining about with Twitter is what Elon is also trying to remedy. But I don't think that there is a remedy for it because that's that's just where we are as a culture. The only way to remedy it is is a way that I don't think is possible at this point with technology. And that is to create an empathy button. Yeah. And, you know, tech social media does not display it. You want to be town. OK, let's go into the town square and have a debate. Um, we can yell at each other as we see on these videos and photos that happen at these protests, right? And then sometimes they kind of escalate and they turn into a a fight. And sometimes they de-escalate and people hug it out and like they hear each other's voices and so on and so forth. That's, That's human nature. But on Twitter, you never get to hug it out. It's always the fight. And that's how it goes. And the reason is, is because in, in the town square, in the real town square, we, we see each other. We see each other as human beings. We have empathy. It exists. It, it happens. And it doesn't in technology because it, it's impossible to, you know, parlay that in a, in a digital platform of words without nuance, with a limitation to the number of characters that you can say. And then there's the other part of it. And this is the part where, like, that I, where I believe the, the main problem lies. There's, to go back to, to like, media communication theories and so on and so forth, there's there's always been these different kinds of, of media that have existed, mediums that existed. So the telephone is a one-to-one medium, right? Where one person talks to one person. Forget about like three-way calling and all that because that's not the normal way it's used, but that's the, the idea. It's one-to-one uh, communication. Along comes radio and, tele- and TV. That is a one-to-many communication. So one person's talking and a lot of people are listening. What the idea behind social media and Twitter specifically was that it would be a many-to-many conversation, right? So you're tweeting that lots of people are tweeting you and so on and so forth. Where it breaks and where it doesn't work is that it's actually not that. If I tweet something, right, let's just say I tweet that I'm eating ice cream and everyone gets upset and they're like, fuck ice cream, you're, you hate your, you should be vegan or you, the poor cows or whatever it is they get upset about, right? And then there's other people that get excited and they're like, I love ice cream and so on. So if I start responding to people, I'm responding to one person, but all these other people are seeing and they have their opinions, but there's no overlap. It gets very confusing very quickly. So it's actually like almost like a billion different one-to-many conversations and no one's seeing them. And it doesn't work. It literally does not work as a communication platform because of that. And I think that's why there are so many problems with Twitter specifically. But it's also why we're so fascinated and intrigued by it and why it's the center of the media universe. Well, I think we're also just post-debate. Like, I don't think that we know how to engage with people whose views we don't completely align with anymore. And part of that is because of Twitter and because uh, of these one-to-many conversations and this extreme empathy gap that you just uh, defined so well. I just think that we are in a society where we only want to hear people who completely agree with us or affirm our belief, or we want to tear down people whose views we oppose. And it's just 
I really don't know that we're in a place where we can have discourse and I want that for us, but I just don't, I don't see it right now. I just, there's no way. We, we can't have discourse on the platform that's created the discourse. It's just not going to happen. It's Correct. like, if we think that turning back to Twitter to solve the problems that we, that were largely created as a result of Twitter, like, huh? It's, it's yeah. not going to happen. The only yeah, way it's going to happen is by us talking to our neighbors and talking to each other in person and having debates and discussions. And, and that shit ain't happening on social media, my friend. Okay, before I let you go, I do want to ask your opinion on if you think anything that we just talked about for the last five minutes 45 minutes is actually going to happen. Is this deal going to go through? What's the, the next step here? What are people telling you? Walk me through all of it. So some of the, the smart investor friends I have have been saying that there's a chance that this all falls apart. And part of the reason is, is because Elon has, has leveraged his, some of his Tesla stock, I believe it's around 21 billion in Tesla stock for this deal. And at the same time, that's happened. Tesla's stock has been on a decline. I think it's down like 20% or something like that, maybe more, 25% since the April 4th date when um, it was at a peak of uh, about $1,145 or so. And now I think it's down to like 862, give or take. And part of the loan that he ha- is getting is tied to, the, it's all t- it's tied to the Tesla stock. And if the stock falls to a certain threshold, the option is exercised and and he has to sell the stock to then pay back the loan and so on. And if it can, if Tesla continues to fall, it's unclear if that's going to happen. But if it does, he could find himself in a situation where he has no choice but to kind of back out of the deal. At the same time, you know, Twitter's valuation is still fluctuating because certain people don't because the street doesn't know if the deal is actually going to go through. And and so the deal could actually become worth. It, become, it could become more expensive by billions of dollars if their value changes. And then lastly, you know, the regulators may back out of this whole thing and may push them back. Um, or someone else, a white knight could come in and say, you know what, I'm going to buy Tesla and I'm not going to pay $54 a share, I'll pay 56 mm. you know. And, and so there's lots of different things that could happen. There's also like all these clauses in the, in the deal where Elon can't go after Twitter employees publicly, even though he's been doing that with the lawyer and so on this week. Like there are things that could happen that could make them back out, make him back out of the deal. Where Twitter's a little screwed is their earnings came out today. They they missed uh, revenue, um, user growth didn't didn't go up by much. So if they back out, you know they could be sued by investors. And so it's all a little bit of a mess, and it's not a guarantee that it happens. My my guess is it will, but I do think that that there are lots of situations where this whole thing could fall apart. Isn't it funny to think that what if Bill Gates were the white knight who came in and then it all came full circle here? That would be that would be amazing if if Bill. I don't know if Bill has the money, but may, I, I, no, he does. He's worth eighty something billion or I something. Like I has, think Bill could do it. I feel like Bill Gates has the money, but you just saying that was well, some extreme shade. That was some Elon level shade on Bill Gates. <laughs> that's really funny. Um, but look, do you want Bill Gates owning the platform? Like, I don't you know, know. I don't. Ca- 20- I don't know that I care about anybody owning the platform, right? Here's what I think. Should, it, it's interesting. Like to go back to Jack. Like I think Jack's got a lot of problems as a leader, and and you know, a strange cat, and so on and so forth. There was a moment back in in 2007 when Yahoo was like the king of the universe, and Twitter was exploding, and Jack was the CEO, and Yahoo reached out to Twitter and they said, Hey, we, we want to buy you guys. We think you're great. You know, we want you to come in and talk and we'll kind of hash it out. And I know everyone that was in the room that day, uh, Bradley Horowitz, who now is at Google, um, was, was the guy who kind of brought them in. I, there was, you know, a bunch of Yahoo folks. Um, Jack goes over there with Ev and, and some other Twitter, Twitter people. And the deal that they were expecting to be offered was about a hundred million for the, for the platform. And just a lot at the time, but it wasn't crazy. Um, and and they go in and they kind of give, you know, they're negotiating that everything's going great. And then Jack, who's who was at the time, did not know what he was doing. He he, you know, couldn't couldn't have run an ice cream stand. Never mind a, a growing startup. 
he stood up and he gave this kind of bizarre speech about how he saw Twitter as kind of like toilets and sewage and, 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 you know, electric lines and this, that, and the other. And every, and the deal largely fell apart because of the bizarre speech that he gave. And really though, what he was saying, he just wasn't able to articulate it at the time is that he saw Twitter as like a, as a, Government, it should have been like a government infrastructure. It should have been an open source platform, no different to the way that toilets work and our electric systems and so on and so forth. And that it should have been the, the town square and it should have been, you know, something that everyone could use for free, essentially. I mean, you pay for these things, but you know what I'm saying. And I think that that there's a world I for me where I feel like, look, the government's not going to buy it, but there should be a scenario where there is a platform like that in the age of the internet where everyone relies on these things for communications that is an an open version of it and that that anyone can use and that there are no limitations and that no one can be banned from and and so on and so forth and that the government should be the ones that rep- that apply the free speech limitations because they have a history of doing it for hundreds of years in this country and thousands of years in others but I don't think that's going to be the white knight. I don't think that's what's going to happen, but it would be amazing if it was. Oh God. Well, Nick, as this plays out, please come back and explain all of this to us again or anything you want to talk about. Anytime you want to come on, we're happy to have you here. It's so nice to get an excuse to talk to you on the record. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And anyone who wants to call me an idiot on Twitter, don't worry, I won't see it. Thank you to our guest, Nick Bilton, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs, and of course, the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you to our sponsors. Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We will see you right here next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon.